Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. We continue our conversation with X-15 historian Michelle Evans, author of the book, The X-15 Rocket Plane, Flying the First Wings into Space. We start out part three of our interview with a discussion of Mike Adams, the only pilot fatality in the X-15 program, and the creation of a memorial to him that sits adjacent to the site of the X-15 number three crash site north of Edwards Air Force Base in the high desert of Southern California. Then we turn our attention to the legacy of the X-15 program, and we round out this episode with a discussion of how the X-15 was capable of both atmospheric flight and space flight, which naturally led to another story about that badass X-15 pilot and astronaut, Joe Engel. Full disclosure to our listeners, I had the opportunity for uh, Michelle to take uh, my friends and I to a memorial dedicated to Mike Adams. And I'd like you to tell our listeners about the genesis of that memorial. And and I guess it just didn't click with me that you were involved with that before you wrote the book. So curious about that memorial. Okay, well, uh, the Michael Adams Memorial is located uh, near a little town called Johannesburg, California, also near Randsburg. It's about 20 miles south of Ridgecrest, California. It's up in the high desert there, north of Edwards. Um, Mike Adams, on his flight November 15th of 1967, he dropped off the B-52 and headed up into space. There were problems along the flight that caused a computer malfunction. There was actually arcing, electrical arcing that occurred because there was an instrument out on a, a pod on the left wingtip that was causing these electrical transients that kept dumping the computer. And he got very distracted by trying to reset this computer over and over and over again, and it would not reset because of the arcing coming from this uh, traversing probe on the wingtip. And so he sort of became distracted, ended up misreading an instrument so that he was reading an instrument that he thought was yaw, and it was actually pitch, but he kept reading it as yaw, and so he tried to center the X-15 back on its flight path, and instead he actually turned the X-15 completely around. So it was running tail first as it entered the atmosphere. Oh, no. And because of that, he ended up, uh, as the air started biting in, it sent the X-15 into a hypersonic spin. It's something that no one else, no other pilot in history before or after has ever experienced. It knocked him out. He apparently did recover consciousness, but regaining the controls, he ended up sending the X-15 into a pilot-induced oscillation, which sent it into a big up-and-down porpoising motion, which exceeded the structural limits on the X-15, and the aircraft started to break apart. And the aircraft came down in, in two major pieces. The forward fuselage was broken off, and it uh, crashed into the desert, 
and killed Mike Adams uh, like five minutes after he had dropped off the wing of the B-52 um, in that spot that we were talking about near Johannesburg. It was a terrible, terrible tragedy. Nothing else like it had occurred on the X-15. It was the only time we lost a pilot on the program. If people are familiar with uh, Boy Scouts, if people are looking to become Eagle Scouts, one of the things they have to do is do a community project of some sort. And this guy, Greg Frazier, was the senior advisor for an Eagle Scout candidate by the name of John Bedelsky. And Greg was a huge fan, still is a huge fan, of the X-15 and decided to talk John into doing a memorial for Mike Adams, which is one of the more unusual community projects I think I've ever heard of for scouting, but uh, it's so great that he did this. So, because Greg was one of the people who really scouted out, surveyed that site, knew exactly where everything was out there, and helped John come up with this idea. John created the uh, design for this. He uh, got the community involved so that they were able to produce this monument. It's a cylinder that's about uh, two feet in diameter, something along those lines. Uh, that was uh, poured concrete, and then it's cut off at about a 45-degree angle, and embedded in the face of that is a panel dedicated to the memory of Mike Adams. Uh, tells a quick story about what happened at that spot. That panel is actually made out of a sheet of Inconel X alloy, uh, so the direct relation to, to the X-15 there. And that was dedicated in May, May 4th of 2004. And this place is sort of out in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's a half a mile off of Trona Road, uh, off of uh, Highway 395. Yet even out there in the middle of nowhere, that dedication day, we had over 100 people there. Bill Dana uh, was the only X-15 pilot who was able to be out there that day, but a lot of X-15 guys were there. Also had uh, a couple of members of Mike Adams' family was there. Brent uh, was out there. His son and his brother George was there as well, and his nephew was there. The idea was that all these people were out there. Uh, Greg and uh, John put together a fantastic uh, ceremony. We had a an honor guard, military honor guard. It was actually ROTC, I believe, honor guard. Uh, had a flyover, uh, things like that. But this memorial out in the middle of the desert is, uh, I went back about a year later and visited it with nobody out there, uh, very lonely out in the desert and seeing just this uh, truncated concrete cone out there. But there's other people that love the X-15 so much. And one of the guys is a name by the name of Rob Enriquez, who works at the BLM out of Ridgecrest. And over the years, he has greatly expanded that site out there. It's something else. I really need to get on Google Maps and see if you can see it on Google Maps from space now, what has been done out there. But it came down that we went out there on the 50th anniversary, November 7th, uh, 15th of 2017, and rededicated the monument. 
and we have these giant display boards out there and there's a concrete X that's poured in the desert. So you can see this from space uh, along with the original memorial. The whole area is fenced in. The road coming out from Trona Road, the dirt road is graded so it's very easy to get to. Uh, Rob has done a fantastic job. And again, the people that come out there, one of the things Rob put out there is a sign-in uh, uh, notebook. And you look at the names and stuff, and there are people from all over the world that have sought out that memorial. It's so neat to see all these people that have gone out there to honor Mike Adams and his memory. One of the things for myself, I've been doing my talks on the X-15 since, well, before the book came out, but I developed a whole new talk called In the Line of Duty, Michael Adams and the X-15, which I expected to do one time. I did it specifically for that 50th anniversary rededication. And um, in the audience of that very first talk was his son, Brent, and Mike's nephew as well. So talk about a tough audience. I thought, God, if I get this story wrong, they're going to take me out and back and I'll never be seen again. But it was so well received that I'm still doing that talk here several years later. And it's been really great to be able to get out there and talk about Mike Adams. I just did this talk at the end of January up at the Proud Bird restaurant and uh, near LAX. And so I'm really, I, again, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I'm able to tell the stories of these people and specifically Mike and let people know who he was because, you know, he died in 1967. There's not many people who know who he is today. And what John Badelsky did, what Greg Frazier did, what Rob Enriquez did, other people like Bob Klein and stuff who really helped out to expand that memorial and expand the memory of Mike Adams. Can't say enough about all these people. No, that's fantastic. And I, I can say personally, having been out there last weekend, it is very moving to uh, to visit that site. They have done a wonderful job. You know, there is actually a lot to see with the with the memorial itself and the displays that have been been put up. Many of the photographs were donated by by you, I believe, Michelle. So that I think is it's a very nice tribute to Mike and Yes, it is. It is kind of out in the middle of nowhere. I will. I will attest to that. That that's why they put aircraft test stuff out there. That's, exactly. That, that's right. Did I hear correctly? I think when we were chatting, I think Greg Fraser mentioned something about how many signatures annually they get out there, like a hundred thousand or something like that, or ten thousand. I couldn't remember the number. Probably in the neighborhood of like ten thousand or so. Rob actually made a copy of the book, which I have here. It's one of my long-term projects. Uh, this was about a year ago that he gave it to me, and it is a very, very full notebook of all the sign-in sheets. Where I'm hoping to get everything digitized at some point, uh, so we'll have a digital record. And eventually also get it updated from Rob. Uh, once I get all these years done, then I can update to where we are now. Yeah. I mean, that's great that in the middle of nowhere and you still get like 10,000 people there a year to visit the site. It's, uh, I think that's wonderful. Tom, I wanted to give you a chance to ask, ask anything that you might have. Yeah. I, uh, so. Just so you know, Michelle, I tend to focus on a lot of the, the technical stuff in here. My, I'm an aerospace engineer by training and, and experience. So I'm thinking that the X-15 legacy is coming to what it 
was looking for in the SpaceX Starship? Well, the closest thing to the X-15 is actually, it was Spaceship One and now Spaceship Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, dropped, dropped from an aircraft, I understand that. Right, and also going into very similar flight regime as the X-15, just not to the speeds, but definitely to the altitudes that the X-15 achieved. The idea of the single stage to orbit, which is what Starship is through SpaceX, uh, it would be really great if we could finally achieve that because it will bring down the cost of flying into space uh, by uh, huge amounts. And so we definitely hope to see that things like that are going to happen. I think a lot of these people, like Elon Musk, Burt Rutan, are the kind of people who were definitely inspired by the story of the X-15 to do what they're doing. And to see that finally bearing fruit is is really great. It's long, long, long overdue. Yeah. Yeah, it, um, it's funny. I've, I've read some, some alternate histories and some speculation that if the government hadn't come in and said, here's how we're going to do space, mm-hmm. things could have gone so much different. And, you know, obviously it's speculation, but, uh, you know, that, that the idea of having different people working on different things and trying different approaches, we could have been somewhere radically different than we are right now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when the X-15 rolled out uh, in October of 1958, it was only two weeks after NASA was formed, and everybody really believed that the X-15 was going to be the vehicle that took the first man into space. Yep. Uh, it was just the logical progression from the Wright brothers onward to take these wings into space. Uh, so it was, it was a shock when everything changed with the ballistic missiles, which of course came out of this competition with the Soviet Union and Sputnik and eventually Yuri Gagarin. Man uh, in space soonest. Exactly. Yes. They definitely missed. Yep. And, uh, so it's nice to see that we're getting back to that. We certainly got back to it to a great extent with the space shuttle program. But, yeah, the X-15 is a great inspiration, and we, we hope that people are going to be inspired by this. It's something that I've been excited about to see how many people remember the X-15, and I'd like to think that my book is helping put it back in the forefront. We had a good friend of ours that worked out at one of these uh, superstores, and we were out there not long after the book had come out, and we were just talking to her about the book release. And there was another person who worked there in her department who overheard us talking about the X-15. And this girl comes walking up to us, and it's like, you're talking about the X-15? I love the X-15. This is so cool. And that girl was 16 years old. Wow. wow. That's awesome. To have somebody that young know this, uh, I've had so many people come up to me when I do my talks. Um, I've had kids as young as 9 and 10 that have gotten copies of my book and had me inscribe it to them and everything. It's, it's going to be the inspiration that some of these people need to say, wow, if they could do it. And that's one of the things. Paul Bickle, you know, Walt Williams before him, but Paul Bickle ran the majority of the X-15 program. And he did it a lot in the same way that you see people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk running their programs today. He was not doing it in the way that was the government way of doing things. He got away with stuff that they would never be allowed to get away with out there. Yeah, restricting the uh, the the uh, 
the attempts to restrict fraud, waste, and abuse, and all that kind of stuff, just completely yeah. clamped down on any creativity that you could do. Oh yes, absolutely. These these guys accomplished so much because they were out in the Mojave Desert, and nobody really cared what was going on at the time, so they could get away with these things. They could build things. Uh, it's like the lifting body program that followed on with the X-15. I mean, it came out of the fact that Paul Bickle was talking to a guy that knew how to build sailplanes, and he talked him into building the very first M2F1 out of plywood. They towed it behind a supercharged car and those kind of things that they would never be able to get away with today. So they already pretty much had the proof of concept the lifting bodies could fly before they took it to NASA headquarters and said, well, we need a full program. And eventually, after seeing that data, then they approved the follow-on program. We had the M2F2, HL10, X24A and B, things like that. And that never would have happened in today's environment. Never. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Did you get in, in, into any discussions with the uh, the pilots about the specific challenges of transitioning from being an aircraft to being a spacecraft with no aerodynamic control and then back again? Well, the X-15 was definitely unique. Yeah, we talked about that with most of these guys. It had three different methods of being able to fly that vehicle. It had a standard center stick. And it also had two different side controllers. And one of those side controllers was just to run a reaction control system, or as they called it in those days, the ballistic control system. So it's the little rockets that could move you around. It couldn't propel you in any way uh, like a real rocket engine like the XLR-99, but it moved how the vehicle was pointed. And then you also had a third controller, which blended the two together because there's that point between air and space where you've got a little bit of both. And again, that was really one of the precursors they needed to fly the space shuttle safely back from orbit was, you know, where is that point? It's not just an an absolute demarcation point of saying, okay, now we're flying by ballistic controls and now we're flying by aerodynamic controls. So it was a unique perspective that these pilots got. It's one of the great things that Joe Engel was able to take forward on the space shuttle program. And he was the only space shuttle commander on all 135 flights of the space shuttle who was allowed to fly the space shuttle all the way from the deorbit burn to touchdown at Edwards Air Force Base because he'd done pretty much the same thing on the X-15. Nobody else was ever trusted with that idea. Yeah, I knew that he, I knew that uh, most astronauts took manual control for the, for the landing, but I hadn't heard that distinction, that he had that, uh, that he had that distinction. That's awesome. Yeah, a lot of the pilots, I mean, all the pilots, any pilot, they want some manual control at some point. 90% at least of the reentry from deorbit burn to landing was all done under automatic control. And a lot of them would just handle it just for that final touchdown. Uh, they did have an auto land system on the shuttle, uh, but they never incorporated that truly because the pilots wouldn't let them because they at least wanted to say, I landed that vehicle from space. Yep. Yep. It's amazing how much of this stuff has to do with bragging rights. That is actually along those lines. It's entertaining. A lot of the chat online is how people are decrying our return to, to capsules, you know, compared to 
compared to landing on a runway. And it's like, yeah, capsules, they're not as glamorous, but boy, they're easier to fly, more flexible as far as like if you want to return from other places like the moon. You know, they, they, they're not something to just be dismissed. Yeah, that's true. That is true. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Space 3D. Join us for part four of our interview with X-15 historian Michelle Evans in our next podcast. For Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.